Welcome to uh, Lounge Podcast number three, currently at Sydney, uh, no we're not at Sydney Airport, we're at Melbourne Airport, that's how fast we're moving around. Melbourne Airport, we played Melbourne last night, uh, the story so far, Brian has had a cheese ham and tomato toasty, I've had fruit bread with honey. Now, let's move on. Uh, we've got loads of questions from last night that we didn't get time for. Um, so, oh, I should also mention, by the way, there's still some tickets for Canberra and Adelaide, and Infinite Monkey Cage books are available in the foyer. Anyway, the questions. Uh, I should also say, last night, uh, the number of people who uh, offered marriage to Brian was three. The number who declared love was four on Twitter. Uh, questions about the Big Bang outnumbered both of those uh, so first of all Greg's question wouldn't the Big Bang eject matter in all directions rather than a cylinder shape as in your diagram if you've not seen the diagram we'll, we'll, we'll put that up a link to that the diagram that Brian uses when talking about the Big Bang so oh it's just a schematic diagram so the, the idea is that the Big Bang didn't happen in a place it happened everywhere so every every point of space was filled with energy and particles and so um, the, any diagram you can't draw that of course so you tend to have these sketches which uh, show the evolution of the universe in time but that's all it was it was a sketch the big bang actually happened everywhere at every point in the universe uh, next question yasmin would like to a uh, nice broad question can we talk about the multi-dimensionality of space please uh, yes so um, in Einstein's theory, it's a basic theory we use to describe the universe. Space time is four dimensional, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. Um, although the distance measures a bit odd, it's not like Pythagoras. It's the distance between two points, the s squared is dx squared minus c squared dt squared. Anyway, you got the minus sign there in the Pythagoras theorem, which, because obviously, well, obviously, <laughs> it is fairly clear that if you have a four dimensional space, the dimension of time can't be exactly the same as the dimensions of space there must be some difference because we have freedom of movement through three-dimensional space but we don't have freedom of movement through four-dimensional space-time in other words the simple way of saying that is we don't have freedom of movement in time so we can't wander into the future and wander into the past as we please in the same way that we can wander backwards and forwards in space so that's the difference anyway that's the basic thing Um, but many theories and they're only theories so um but uh, things attempts to build quantum theories of gravity like string theory suggest that there may be more dimensions than that um and so you might ask the legitimate question well surely we'd perceive them but the answer is no um, for example many of the theories have extra dimensions that are curled up very small so the picture would be that each point in space there would be a very complicated multi-dimensional structure but it's so small that you can't see it. Um, so uh, the analogy that's often given is imagine a host pipe at the bottom of your garden. And if you look at it from a very long way away, then it's a straight line, just a, just a, a one-dimensional object, a line. But if you walk up to it, you can see that it's actually a curved, cylindrical thing, two-dimensional host pipe. You've got to get close enough to resolve that structure. And it's the, the these theories that... Uh, suggest there may be extra dimensions. Some of them are like that, so the, the extra dimensions can be curled up. Now, um, David, who we met last night, 11-year-old David, who uh, at one point asked you a question uh, and said, uh, I understood your physics, but I don't understand his jokes, pointing at me, yeah. which uh, do, does actually well, mean that my me jokes are more intricate than your physics. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, what's the most obscure joke you've ever told to a... Uh, uh, 
an audience member below the age of 18? Probably one about uh, Michael Nyman's uh, music in Drowning by Numbers, the Peter Greenway film. Uh, but it did involve some more broader kind of observational material uh, about the speed of decay of animals. So in the end, I won them back. 11-year-olds love the speed of decay of animals. Um, his other question uh, was, how much mass does a black hole need for it to be stable? Um, so, uh, I mean, the answer is, there isn't... The stability of black holes is a, an interesting question. We discussed it a bit in the show. So uh, what we suspect happens is that they evaporate away over long timescales. They have a temperature uh, and they, they radiate due to a process called Hawking radiation. And if something radiates, then it loses energy. Uh, that means it loses mass and ultimately it ceases to be a black hole. So we think black, black holes have a finite lifetime, all of them. Uh, the key point is the temperatures... Uh, inversely proportional to the area of the event horizon of the black hole. So, the, in other words, the smaller a black hole is, the hotter it is, and so the shorter its lifetime. And the larger or more massive a black hole is, the, the, the lower its temperature is and the longer its lifetime. And actually, even for black holes of order the mass of the sun, um, the, if, you, if you calculate the temperature, then it's way, way, way below the temperature of the cosmic microwave background at the moment. So at the moment, the universe is much hotter than a black hole. <laughs> and so, so the black hole actually absorbs energy from the universe. And it's only when the universe has cooled down by expanding in the far future that the black hole starts to, to lose energy into the universe again. Um, so th but the, the point is, so there's a, there's a minimum mass of black holes that get made by stellar collapse, so the end of a star's life. Um, because if, if the remains of the star are less than about 1.4 times the mass of the sun, then, um, now is that, or would that be a white dwarf? What's the, um, let, me, let, me, let me remember what that is, <laughs> that limit. Just listen to the announcements in the room. I want to get that right. Oh, well, while you're doing that, uh, here's a joke for David. I hope you like this one. It's still one of my favourite jokes. What's brown and sticky? A stick. I hope you got that one. You're still on the... Uh, the um... Also, I think Alexia, who is going to be our next question, which we'll... we'll I won't ask you, obviously, about that. Uh, rather nice. She has a tattoo that... Uh, she got Neil deGrasse Tyson to draw uh, a picture of a space rocket uh, on her wrist and then had it tattooed. And uh, it's, it's not a very intricate space rocket. It wasn't a great space rocket, was it, Brian? It was kind of a fun one. Oh, we've got the, the answer. I can't remember an exact number. Is I just found a couple of papers. There's one here from July 2013 that says one of the most intriguing questions about neutron stars concerns their maximum mass. The answer is int intimately related to the properties of matter at densities far beyond that found in heavy atomic nuclei. The current view on the internal constitution of neutron stars and on their maximum mass, both from the so it's a review of the. So, so I can't remember the number. There's a thing called the Chandrasekhar limit. Um, which is the maximum mass of white dwarfs, which I do know it's 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So if something is larger than 1.4 times, more massive than 1.4 times the mass of the sun, then um, then you would that would collapse into a neutron star. So it looks like neutron stars perhaps will stay up for about three solar masses or so, um, something like that. And uh, after that, they can't stay up. The, 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 the force of gravity overwhelms them and they, they squash down, we think, into a black hole. Uh, but it, 
some intricate calculations required there. So in terms of stars, they don't produce black holes that are lighter than three times the mass of the sun. But we do think there might be, for example, primordial black holes, which uh, would have been made in the very early stages of the universe, which can be uh, any mass you like, even a subatomic um, dimension black holes, which have um, very small masses indeed. And that was one of the things we thought we might be able to create in particle collisions, uh, the Large Hadron Collider, or perhaps in cosmic ray collisions. And we do look for them. So, so in principle, the, the, the spectrum of black hole masses, albeit that the black holes are made in different processes, can span the entire range of masses in the universe. And there are also supermassive black holes, many millions of times massive stars in the centre of galaxies. And we don't really know how they form either. We've got another, uh, this was Alexia, who, as I said, I think is the person who has a tattoo uh, from a, a sketch that Neil deGrasse Tyson did uh, on her wrist, and in fact asked if you would uh, do uh, a little drawing on her, for, yeah. and you said, best not, not one of your skills. Yeah. What were you going to give her again? I can't remember. Well, no, then, said. Then, so she said she'd like something written in her book, so, so I said, she said, what's the most fundamental equation in physics, which is kind of an interesting question. So I wrote... The, the, uh, the, the change in entropy in a closed system is always greater than zero or equal to zero in a reversible process because that's second law of thermodynamics so she now has that tattooed on which is a good thing that. to have a, a body which is of course going through a period of decay to have something about entropy actually like an instruction uh, written on it is, uh, is rather good this is um, Alexia's uh, question was what do you think we might learn as we study data from the gravity waves detected earlier this year I mean, there are different ones. There are three three observations now. So, uh, the, the first two were collisions of black holes, and um, there are. But the, the the recent one was a collision of neutron stars, and that's just really probably the richest at the moment. I think because we had optical observations of it as well. Well, you talk a little bit about this in the show as well. Yeah. So, so um, we learned, for example, that lots of gold was created in the collision, which was a it was an idea. It's probably widely accepted, it's been around for a long time, but we'd never seen it. So we'd never seen heavy elements being produced in the collision of neutron stars, and now we have. And that, I thought that was very beautiful. It's kind of an aside, though. There, there are some people have pointed out that these colliding neutron stars can be perhaps used as what's called standard candles in the universe. So one of the key... Um, well, the base, the basis, really, of modern cosmology is that we can estimate the distance to objects um, through knowing their actual brightness. So the idea is that if you know how bright something actually is, and you know how bright it looks in the sky, then you can work out how far it is away. And we need to know that because we need to know how far something is away and how fast it's receding from us. Or I suppose, if you like, what the redshift is of the object um, in order to calibrate the expansion rate of the universe. So we need to know distances. And um, the way that we measure distances is called the distance ladder in astronomy. And it's based on various observational ideas, like the stars called C-feed variables, which, whose, whose, the variation, the brightness of the stars is related to their intrinsic brightness and so on. So there's a distance ladder that we use. But the, the, the idea is that these events can provide an independent distance ladder because we have so many observations, the gravitational wave observations and the optical observations, that we can fully characterise what happened in the collision and then we can work out how bright it is and then we can measure the distance to it and we can also measure the redshift. So we get a completely independent 
of the expansion rate of the universe, independent of all the other measurements and methods um, through these collisions. And I thought that was really quite cool. Um, so it opens up a cross-check, if you like, to the, the standard measurements of distance and redshifts and expansion rates of the universe, which I thought was very cool. And the other thing, the, the big hope is that we see something that's not described properly by Einstein's theory of general relativity. These very extreme conditions you get in black hole mergers, the, the, the theory breaks down, and then you get a pointer to a new theory, which we suspect is there, but we don't know what to do. Um, final question uh, is, there's so many, in fact we have so many, I'm sorry we haven't, we, we'll try and do more of these questions for another podcast. Johanna would like to know, what is the single biggest thing we can all do to preserve the pale blue dot? Um, I would say um, reconnect <coughs> with reconnect with fact. So uh, I'm not saying that in a kind of a sarcastic way. I mean that our societies, I think at the moment, certainly in certain areas of the world, uh, the UK, the US, Australia to an extent, seem to have lost the ability to 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 change direction and to make decisions based on data and modeling and thought and i think that that the big for me the biggest threat to the our civilization at present is that separation um of the, the separation of decision making from data and facts there, there is a the thing is there is a reality um, nature is a real thing and it exists independent of us it doesn't matter what we think about it uh, and there are great challenges to living in a universe like ours it's a violent and threatening place and the best chance you have to persist is to understand it and to understand it you have to understand what measurements and data are and you have to respect them and you have to change your opinion in the face of data and I think that we've slightly lost that, that great enlightenment idea that we base our opinion on observation and facts is being lost and actively attacked in some quarters for political reasons and that is a, a cavalier and ludicrous attitude because it can't it can't be sustained well that's it, it, you, you say it, that's being actively attacked in the day that yesterday the environmental protection agency in the u.s they're basically changing it so it's going to have uh, be skewed more towards business advisors as opposed to scientific advisors which seems insane it is i mean it is gen you both draw that there's a distinction just to put some balance into the act. There's a distinction between policy response to facts and the facts themselves. And a, so it's true that you might, if you want to develop a policy response to, for example, projections on the changing climate, then it's it's appropriate to have business voices in there as well as as other voices, I suppose. So you could you could make that argument, but it's certainly not appropriate to try and discredit the 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 models as we understand them today because you don't like the bus- the consequences for your business because well, another point the EPA is, should be scientific and then business reacts outside then the policy well, yeah. is made off the back of what they've said as opposed to placing them within well, the, the only reason I caveated it is because I don't actually know what the EPA what the EPA's role in policy making is so so you know that, that's that's the only reason I caveated it. but the, your broad point is correct. And then, so the, the point that I said, I've always said that, um, and this is the problem in democracies, I suppose, is that you can, you can, you can convince if you're a charismatic politician, you convince, you can convince voters 
often that, for example, to, to abolish gravity, you could you can convince them to vote to abolish, abolish gravity, but they'll be very annoyed when they hit the ground. And uh, that, that's the position we're in, I think, in many of our democracies at the moment. We've convinced people, perhaps for, for, for good reason. Uh, people have got good reasons to believe the status quo is not serving them well. But we've convinced people to vote for things that cannot be delivered because they are literally run against reality. And I think that's the biggest problem that we face at the moment. We need more humility in politics. Uh, that's the end. We've got to go to gate number one now. We're going to go to Brisbane. Uh, as I said, Canberra and Adelaide, there are uh, still uh, some tickets there. And uh, the Infant Monkey Cage book, How to Build a Universe, Part 1, is available in most bookshops. All good bookshops and most, most bookshops. Yeah. <laughs> This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.